0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, John, and team, it's wonderful, isn't it, just to have our eyes lifted to Jesus, the King like no other in that way, and um, of course, to continue uh, to have our eyes lifted to Him as we open the Word together this morning. Um, as Mike said, my name's Reuben. wonderful to visit uh, here from the Broadview campus. I always look forward uh, to being able to uh, join with, uh, with you here at, at Ross Trevor, and um, uh, it's a real delight uh, to, to be part of this series as we continue our look through uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, this week we come to a story that's going to be very familiar, the David and Goliath story. And, um, and so, yeah, looking forward to getting into that. To start with, though, I want to just uh, ask you to think for yourself, what, what do you think is the most kind of uh, interesting uh, feature of being a human? What is the, what is the most interesting or, or kind of strange thing, a fascinating thing that you find uh, is true about humans? You'll have a lot of different answers, I'm sure. Um, but for me, I was thinking, one thing that is really kind of fascinating about the way we work is our perception, the way we see our world and interact with our world. Uh, in particular, we are, for many of us, so reliant on our sight to make sense of our world and especially other people. Um, but the interesting thing about our sight is that it is often unreliable. I'm sure you've seen many examples of uh, sort of tricks that our eyes can play on us, uh, perception tricks. So I've got a few of them on screen uh, for you to enjoy. This one here, I promise you, those lines are exactly parallel. They look wonky because of the way the squares are set up. They are actually parallel. On the next slide, we've got, well, a question. What do you think the center, the central, Circle there, different size, same size? It's actually the same size. And on the next slide, I, it may be a little bit too small to see, but there is a demonstration that it is actually the same size. Weird, but true. And on the next one, uh, what do you see? Looks like some old people, doesn't it? But if you look closer, it's a little guy playing guitar, and it's the little vase in between them. It's a variation on the very famous... Um, Vars and faces uh, perception trick. Okay, so there's lots of different ways in which we are so reliant on our sight, but it is one of those things about being a human that can be unreliable. We come to this uh, climactic story in 1 Samuel, the one everyone knows, I suppose because it's been found in every children's Bible ever printed in all of history, since the beginning of time, the David and Goliath story, uh, which is great, but also because it's so popular... I guess one challenge is we can come to it assuming that we already know what it's all about, or even uh, one of the other things to keep in mind is we can sometimes come to stories like this with the kind of pop culture interpretation, because this is one of those stories that has made its way into just the general uh, consciousness. Uh, Is it just a story about the triumph of the weak over the strong? Well, that's something to keep in mind. Is there more going on here? Is it... Uh, is it simply about The Little Guy Wins, which is kind of how we talk about this story in in popular culture. So today, I I do really want to encourage us uh, not to tune out, because you think uh, you know it all already, Um, and also let's try and listen afresh uh, and invite God to show us uh, new details, uh, something that will help us to understand Him and His purposes for us more clearly. I'm confident that for every person here, God has something new and important to teach us uh, this morning. So I want to lead us in prayer again and just ask Him to do that, and then we'll read through uh, this story together. Uh, so Heavenly Father, we do thank You so much for Your Word. Uh, we thank You for this part of Your Word and the way that, uh, yeah, it is such a memorable story. Uh, it's a, a story that does teach us so much about You uh, and the way that uh, You are King and express Your kingship Uh through, through humans and, uh, and through our, our circumstances, we pray that you would give us eyes to truly see you this morning. Help us to be attentive to all of the details uh, you need us to see in this story and to, uh, to have hearts and minds that are, uh, are ready, are willing to respond to you um, in the way that you would have us respond. And so we ask this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's read through this together. So, um, we're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 37. Uh, we won't get to the, the actual battle bit, but just before that. And so, if you want to follow along, feel free to in your Bibles or your device, and it will be on screen as well. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 17 from verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socor in Judah. They pitched camp at ephes Mim, between Socor and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span... He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels. On his legs he wore bronze graves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed six hundred shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle?" Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your servants, Uh, we will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, "'Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit, see how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel." David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. So David sent Said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. The way I want to tackle this is to ask first, um, what does this story mean in its context? Uh, Then uh, we'll spend uh, the middle part of our our talk, our time together, asking what is the key point of this story? Um, What what really comes out of this story is something that we we can focus in on. And then third, how do we read this story as Christians? Uh, So, how do we read this part of Scripture um, as Christian people? Okay, so that's that's where we're going to travel today. So what does it mean in its context? I really love that this series has gotten us reading through 1 Samuel as a whole narrative. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that as well. I've certainly gotten a lot out of this. Um, uh, Often uh, with large books like this in the Old Testament, we end up just pulling out two or three of the, the famous or most interesting stories, but it really helps us actually. When we come to a chapter like 1 Samuel 17... Uh, we're going to see how we've been prepared in many ways by the author to understand what to take from this story. For example, one of the problems in chapter 17 that we've just read is that there is this huge Philistine that no one in the Israelite army wants to fight, no one who seems to be a match for this giant bully. See how Goliath is described in verses 4 and 5. Uh, We read his height was six cubits and a span, it's about three metres tall, he had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. It's not surprising that they are all terrified, but is it really true that there is no match for Goliath? Do you remember how Saul was described back in chapter 9? Saul is the people's choice as king and he is the people's choice because he looks like the kind of guy who is meant to be a king, a king like the other nations have. In particular, look at chapter 9 verse 2, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. You see, Saul is the appropriate match for Goliath. But as we heard last week in chapter 16, Saul is not in a great place. Through a series of disastrous missteps, God has rejected Saul as king, God's spirit has left Saul and Saul is now tormented by some kind of mental illness related to the affliction of an evil spirit. Saul's army is is, uh, squared up again against the Philistines. They've had a number of successes in battle, but at this point, we don't expect very much from him now. How else are we we prepared by previous parts of the story? Well, uh, think back right, if you can, think back right to the beginning of this series to Hannah's song in chapter 2. Even though Saul does not look like he'll be able to do much good, we do come into this David and Goliath battle with some confidence, not because of Saul, but because of God. Uh, Here from chapter 2, this is Hannah's song where she says, "'It is not by strength that one prevails. "'Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. "'The Most High will thunder from heaven. "'The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. "'He will give strength to his king "'and will exalt the horn of his anointed.'" That is, God will silence all who oppose Him and those who oppose His people. And importantly, God's King will rule and have victory, not in His own strength, but in weakness, according to the might and power of the Lord." At this point in the story, of course, there is some ambiguity about who the real king is. Uh, Saul is king in name and in principle, but God has rejected him, you'll recall, and Samuel has anointed David. Um, That's obviously a key detail to be aware of as well as we come into this story. But the most important way that the context helps us understand chapter 17 is found in the comment about the difference between God's perception and human perception. Uh, from chapter 16 uh, last time. As God speaks to Samuel about which of Jesse's sons must replace Saul as king, we read this very important comment. Uh, From chapter 16, verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, speaking about David's oldest brother. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David's oldest brother Eliab, like Saul, is tall and outwardly looks like a king, but he is not God's choice. Rather, David, the young unimpressive shepherd boy, is the one God sees will be fit to be king. This pointer Uh, to the fact that God sees not as people see is crucial to understanding the David and Goliath story in chapter 17. God doesn't just look to the appearance of things, He sees how they truly are at heart. So, when the scene is painted of Goliath, what do we see? Well, initially, a huge man with impressive armour, enormous weapons, booming, roaring taunts, but what's really going on? How are we going to look at this situation? Like people do? Looking to outward appearances? Or is there a theological way to view what's going on? Is there a way to look at this like God sees it? What would it look like to see things as God sees them? Well, it turns out that David is going to help us see just that perspective. Uh, So let's come now to uh, the key point of this story. Let's come now uh, to the David and Goliath story itself and see what we can say about its uh, central point. Uh, So firstly, Goliath is presented, as we've already spoken a bit about, uh, setting the scene. He's big, scary, obnoxious. Uh, Everyone knows that about uh, Goliath. But given the setup, what are we meant to think about him? not too much, right? Uh, the expectation is we shouldn't pay too much attention to outward appearances. The problem is all of Saul's army does exactly that. Verse 10, the Philistine said, uh, this, the, the Philistine, that is Goliath, said, this day I defy the armies of Israel, give me a man, let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Philistines were dismayed and terrified, Into this context, David arrives in verse 12. Uh, He's introduced again, like he was when when Samuel anointed him. Uh, we're, We're reminded about his older brothers, that he is the youngest, and we hear again that he is not a warrior or soldier like his bigger brothers. He works at home on the family farm. The reason David is there is not to fight, but to give food to his brothers, as he makes the delivery... Um, And is talking with his brothers, he hears in verse 23, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, steps out from his lines, shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Then verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, "'What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel?' Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice how David sees the situation. These are the very first words we hear David speak. And so, they are a defining moment in characterising David and helping us to understand who he is and how he sees things. And what you notice is how Goliath is described. Uh, very rarely, actually, in this whole, whole section is, is he described as Goliath from Gath. Uh, in this section, uh, after David comes on the scene, you'll find Goliath's proper name only twice. And every single time David speaks of Goliath, he calls him what? The Philistine, that uncircumcised Philistine, this disgrace. That's how... David is viewing this situation. And and remember, we are being challenged to see things God's way, not the way humans see things. Well, here we have a human who sees things God's way. David doesn't see the towering, imposing champion, Goliath from Gath, but rather a mere, uncircumcised Philistine. Someone in open and active opposition towards God and His people, someone who proudly and boastfully uh, mocks and menaces the armies of the living God. And so David sees there is only one possible outcome for this uncircumcised Philistine, and that gives him courage to act. It's also significant that in describing Goliath as the Philistine, it presents him as a representative of God's enemies, not just as this lone nemesis. Uh, we heard a few times about him stepping out from the lions, but describing him as a Philistine reminds us that he is a, a representative of all of those who stand opposed to God and his people. Uh, he, he represents, in some sense, dead idols in contrast to the living God, and he will share their fate if you can think back to when the ark was captured and that very humorous incident with um, the idols belonging to the Philistines and and what happened to them. The same fate awaits Goliath. And David will end up representing God and his people in the same way. David will be a representative uh, who, um, uh, who will be an individual who determines the fate or fortune of the many. And we'll come back and think about that and reflect on that a bit later. But before we get there, David himself finds himself opposed by two other people, Um, So another interesting thing that happens in this is that it's not just Goliath who David has to battle. He also has to contend with his big brother and with Saul. Uh, You probably noticed this in the reading, the exchange between David and his oldest brother Eliab. I find this pretty funny. Uh, I think any older sibling can relate and every younger sibling has probably been in a situation like this. In verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked him, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Eliab looks at David and he too sees only outward appearances. David is his annoying little brother, a shepherd, not a warrior. A conceited troublemaker who he hopes will leave soon, go back to where he belongs, David is an embarrassment to him and an annoyance. But uh, David ignores Eliab, again a a very younger brother thing to do, and eventually makes his way to stand before Saul. Saul. And so we see Saul's assessment of David is also shaped by human perception. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. But Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Into this, David helps us see things from God's perspective again. He he reflects on the way that God has always uh, enabled, uh, acted and enabled David to triumph over lions and bears while watching sheep. David's God is more than able to protect his people and to do mighty things through and even despite weakness. Yes, David might be just a boy, uh, just a shepherd, but he is able to see that God has always uh, acted to save him and so Goliath will be no different. David has full confidence in the God who fights the enemies of his people. And so Saul says to David in verse 37, go and the Lord be with you. In the part of the story that we didn't read, the actual battle which I'm sure many of us know well uh, but if not it's certainly worth a read, the key points are Saul tries to give David his armour but it's too big again pointing to the fact that Saul really is the appropriate match for for Goliath, but David says he doesn't need it anyway. Uh, It then highlights how a big part of Saul's problem actually has been that he's tried to defeat the enemy on the enemy's terms, using their weapons and their tactics, but David's tactic is simple, God will win the battle. Uh, So, he doesn't need the armour, just goes and collects a few stones, so off he goes with his sling and his stones, there are some words exchanged, then a stone... And the giant is dead even before the weapons of war, in this case the giant's own sword, is used to cut off his head. The key point in this whole section is that David is the kind of Messiah we have been waiting for from since Hannah's song in chapter 2. Uh, he wins in such a way that it is crystal clear, God is the deliverer. And David, Is able to see things from God's perspective. He is marked at this point as a king after God's own heart. So how do we read this story as Christians? What what can we take from this story uh, as we reflect on it for us today? Beyond being a classic story to keep kids' Bible producers in business, which uh, that's, you know... That's fine, I'm happy for that, although it is a pretty gruesome story if you think about it. Um, Our first daughter often wanted to skip over the page about the giant falling down dead. She was happy with the first part of the story, but she's like, no, I don't want to see Goliath. Um, But uh, aside from that, beyond that, there are a couple of important ways that this story speaks to us today as Christians. Firstly, it prepares us for Jesus, God's ultimate Messiah, great King David's greater son, David shows us a number of things about what it means to be God's anointed, his Messiah. He shows us an unwavering trust in God and faithfulness to him, a confidence that God will have victory and can do that even through weakness and against all the odds. David provides the framework for understanding what it means for the Messiah to be a representative who saves many. Uh, so not only does David help, help prepare us for Jesus and for his faithful obedience to God, but for the way that that faithful obedience will actually be something that impacts all of God's people. Uh, you know, often people can say, how can Jesus' death, that one death, do anything for the whole human race? How does that work? How can one man's death set many free from God's judgment and from death? Well, David in 1 Samuel 17 gives us very helpful insight into how that can be true, doesn't it? And so, when Jesus says in places like Mark chapter 10 verse 45, for even the Son of Man, uh, speaking of Himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, we're reminded about how God has done this many times in the past, including in this battle that we've just read about. And Romans 5, verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the disobedience of the one man, many will be made... So, sorry. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. We see how David prepares us for the ultimate Messiah who brings life and freedom to the multitudes of those who are his people. We even see a similar pattern in this David narrative and in in Jesus' victory won at the cross. Uh, We see here David being mocked, ridiculed by Goliath, but also by his own people to some extent, his brothers and Saul. So Jesus is mocked and ridiculed as he dies on the cross. It's because Jesus' way of bringing victory, it was a scandal to His countrymen and looked like foolishness to the other nations, very much like David's suggestion that this battle will be won by God. But God uses weak, offensive, uh, foolish ways. He uses the cross to defeat the greatest enemies of His people once and for all. But the main way this David and Goliath episode looks forward to Jesus and is a great help to us today is that it reminds us of the importance of not uh, looking at things in a merely human way. We need to have God's perspective on the situations that we face, something that David was able to see because of God's Spirit working in him. He could look at Goliath and see a mere mortal shaking his fists at God. And so, bringing God's perspective to that situation, the truth of what was going on was very clear. Uh, so true with Jesus, and in even greater degree, as we, we um, hear Jesus in the Gospels, as we, uh, as we learn from Him, He opens up in so many amazing ways what it means to see things the way God sees them. And He encourages us to have those same eyes of faith. There are so many examples I could give here. I'm just going to give one uh, as an example, but uh, this is a great thing for us to to reflect on. Think of the way Jesus speaks about anxiety, for example. The the birds, He says, don't worry about uh, what they're going to eat because they know that God cares for them. He cares for us much more than the birds, Jesus says, and so there is no need to be anxious about those kinds of things. Uh, Today has enough troubles of its own. There are so many ways in which, uh, if you stop and think about it, Jesus is actually asking us to look at things differently, look at things in the way that God sees them, not just the way we ordinarily interpret circumstances. The last and key way I just want to point out from the Gospels that we see this uh, is to come back again to the cross as we finish, uh, because we see such a clear example of this two perspectives thinking Uh, When Jesus asks Peter, uh, you might be familiar with this story, when He asks Peter who He is uh, in Mark chapter 8, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, that is true, you've got it, and this means I will suffer and die. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter thinks Jesus dying would be a terrible way to be the Messiah. What use could that be to anyone? But Jesus, seeing with God's perspective, knows that His death actually is the only way that He can be the Messiah who saves all of God's people. The One who gives His life as a ransom for many. So I want to leave this with us as a challenge today. As we go into our our weeks, as we continue on, as uh, as those who are following King Jesus, where in our lives do we need to be seeking more for God's perspective? Where are we prone uh, to be tricked by what our eyes see into looking at the world, to looking at people, to looking at our circumstances in merely human ways? How is this story uh, something that will will encourage us and and uh, encourage us to call upon God uh, to help us see things the way He sees things? Uh, It's so, so important. It's hard to do, uh, but it is something that God works in us as His Holy Spirit teaches us uh, to see things more and more uh, from from His way of seeing things. So, uh, how can we learn from that? How can we learn from David? How can we learn from Jesus? Uh, That is what I want to leave with us today and and what I want to pray for, for us now. Uh, So will you join me as we we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, that uh, though so often it is uh, much easier just to trust our instincts, to trust our own sight, uh, we're so thankful that You call us and you make it possible for us to see things the way you see them. Uh, Thank you for the way we saw that through David. Thank you for the the way that, uh, even more profoundly, Jesus uh, shows us what it looks like to live with a firm uh, assurance that you are the King, that our future is secure, uh, that you are the one who provides, you are the one who we can firmly place our hope in. And so, as we, uh, as we um, uh, uh, seek to, to live our lives as we as we go from here, and, and as we uh, seek to be faithful to you, please help us. Please open our eyes and help us to see things as they truly are. Uh, we pray that, um, we pray that you would uh, do this not just for our own sakes, but help us to be helpful to others as well. Help helpful to others of your people where they might need a reminder. To see the truth about you, to be reminded that we do have a king like no other. And we pray this all for uh, his sake and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.